0: Everybody, doing? Let me get hooked up here and go. Hey, how's everybody doing? My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We're 45 strong up and down the state, and that means if you have a paranormal problem, we can help you. It might take us a while to get to you. California is a huge state, but we will get to you, and also for the people that we can't get to right away. We have psychics on staff who can phone you, and talk to you about what you think may or may not be going on. And in most cases, they can help calm down the energy. Uh, tonight we are broadcasting live on Facebook, and TikTok, Twitter, and Twitch. And I want to welcome TikTok. Uh, unfortunately, if you guys try to send me messages on TikTok, I'm blind. <laughs> I'm on my I'm on my iPhone. I cannot see your messages. I'm not ignoring you, but I just cannot see your messages. I apologize for that. However, I know you're there. I do have a goal up there, uh, you know, those does a little happy meal of things, but uh, you're not required to send me any money, a goal, or anything like that. If you feel like you've enjoyed tonight's show and you want to do that, please do. I'm also offering subscriptions because we're going to be doing a lot more stuff on TikTok. We're developing a, a separate talk show from what we do over here at California Haunts Radio for you guys. We're also going to be telling ghost stories and doing live, live psychic readings and things like that over on TikTok. So if uh, you, you decide that you like tonight, and you know, this is just part of it, uh, feel free to subscribe because I'm trying to build up my subscribers. Okay, tonight, uh, it's Thursday night, and we're going to be starting a new book, Maren Muter's new book. Uh, we did read the, you know, the Book of Buried Letters, Dear Flower Lady, and the book was really, really good. A lot of insight into Maren's life, and I, I learned stuff I didn't know about her, I've known Maren for a while. So tonight we're just to, kind of like a continuation of this book, and the book is titled. Let me pull this up so I don't screw it up. Inside Past Life Connections, at Dear Flower Lady. So it's a it's it's sort of a continuation of the other book that we read, and I was also reading it live on TikTok every Sunday. Normally I read every Sunday, but I decided to kind of take a break today. You know, it's the last day of the month, and so I decided that it'd be fun to read tonight. So for those of you in California, you know, and and, and Central. You're just sitting down to have dinner, you're just sitting down to relax, take your shoes off, sit on the couch, sit in the lights. It's a great book, there's nothing spooky in here or anything. Uh, I think you're going to enjoy it. For those of you on TikTok on the West Coast, same thing. Or maybe you're on the East Coast and you're just getting ready to wind down for the night. Well, feel free to uh, put your jammies on and uh, put your fuzzies on and uh, lay back, have some hot cocoa, and just listen. just listen to the stories. It's a great book. It's great read. Also, I'm looking to build up my amount of love. And for Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok, the way to get put up higher in the FYP on these places is for you guys to show me how much you appreciate what I'm doing or if you like what I'm doing. So if you could do me a favor, and this goes for TikTok, this goes for Facebook, this goes for YouTube and Twitter and Twitch, if you like what you hear tonight and you appreciate it, Please, please, please show me some love, you know, uh, t- TikTok, enough, uh, sorry, <laughs> there's too many going on right now, Facebook and, and uh, YouTube, send me some hearts, send me some happy faces, things like that, I'd really appreciate it, okay, because that'll put us higher in the, in that FYP, and what that does is it puts us out there, you know, the computer sees it, and it pushes this out to more people. TikTok, if you could find it in your heart to tap that screen tonight while I'm reading, I'd really appreciate it. I'm trying to build up my likes. I mean, we're just getting started with TikTok. It's been a month or two, and I'm just getting started with with building this up. So if you could find it in your heart to double tap that screen and, you know, send me some likes. I would really, really appreciate it. Okay, quick warning for everybody involved here. I do have permission to read this book from the publisher and the writer. Also, we are a PG-13 to a rated R channel. So if you hear something that you don't like, please do not turn me into TikTok and get me banned. Same goes for other places. Just move on, okay, because there's other stuff that's out there tonight, and, you know, if, if this makes you uncomfortable, then please, please move on, all right? I'm sorry for the loud noise in back, everybody. It's hot here. It's like 90 right now, <clears throat> so I've got my through-the-window air conditioner, so that, that that's what that, sound, that, that, that noise is in the back. Anyway, I'm going to read for about an hour from this book. Let me like, make sure I can do this here. And uh, again, if if you like it, you enjoy it. Please, please, please tap that screen. And again, I'm looking for possible donation, you know, po- possible like goodies from you guys up there. If you want, there's a goal. It just helps me keep the show on the air, keeps me producing the show, and uh, we just keep going. And for TikTok, before I do take off and start on this, hang on one second. I got to get something going here. Hang on. I'm on the wrong page. Hang on. Okay. Multiple pages, I am. And for TikTok, just an FYI to let you know, is normally Monday through Monday through Thursday, oh, sorry, Monday through Friday, we do a paranormal news show. And uh, not just paranormal, but all kinds of different topics. And tonight, like I said, we're, we're going to do a read. Normally, we read on Sunday afternoons. So, yeah, we're just doing a kind of changing it up this week a little bit to start this new book. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoy this book. I think we're gonna I think we're gonna have a great time with it. Uh, it's, it's just fascinating because it delves into the world. Uh, the last book dealt into the world of fairies and fairy folk and all that, and that was absolutely fascinating. So hopefully you guys enjoy this book. And please, please, if you like what you hear, send me some love, give me some thumbs up, get you know, give me some hearts, give me some happy faces. TikTok, tap that screen because like I said, I'm trying to build up my likes because I'm just starting out, you know, get, going on TikTok. Alright, so here we go, and uh, we're going to start reading, and let me pull it up. I may have to make some adjustments to size on this stuff, so let's see. And already we're not pulling it. Okay, what's going on here? Okay, here we go. Alright, I'm going to blow this up, a little, enlarge this a little bit so I can read it, because I have old eyes and I'm blind as bad. So let me do this real quick. Okay. So here we go. It took eons to get the soil just right, eons to fine-tune the amount of sunlight, and rain was just enough cloud cover. Okay, hang on, it's not moving, okay. And storms to adjust the humidity levels and temperatures. By simmering a proprietary blend of oxygen, nitrogen, carbon dioxide, and other elements, the gods were preparing the earth for scenes full of creatures and plants who would take their turns on stage. Eventually, these life forms Roam the waters and climb the highest peaks. They started off with baby steps, though movements smaller than the tiniest atoms and glided over each face as the butterfly does the mountain. Chapter 1 Evasion. Again, I am reading from Inside Past Life Connections Dear Flower Lady by Mary Muter. I have full permission to read this from the publisher and the writer. And if you could help me out on TikTok, please double tap that screen. Show me some love. Double tap that screen. I'd really, really appreciate it. Dust particles hung in the air above me as I lay on my back in a warm, cascading ray of sun on the shag carpet. My arms stretched slowly towards these tiny keepers of great secrets. The particles moved, it seemed, only to skirt the fingers of my small hand. I held my breath. I held my breath as to not give these little specks any more reason to dance away. Through the silence, I listened for the beat of my heart and my blood moving in its own time. Swish, swish, swish. It was then that familiar repeating scenes began arising from the dark recesses of my memory. There were multiple memories vying for attention and I tried to slow time while observing them cautiously and wondered if I could see them could they see me? Could those individuals in the memories look through this same portal and find me now? I could practically taste the scenes, the seasonal weathers, the warmth of home, or the trepidation of other surroundings. It was all out there. I could feel it. But no matter what recollections the memories brought, here I was, helpless and trapped in a new body, one that had me starting all over again. The sun poured in through the window now. Mount Hood stood strikingly wide against the odd blue horizon that stretched beyond Portland Oregon. Birds chirped. Outside, the grasses were moist and green. It was a peaceful facade. Part of me knew exactly what I was doing here. Evasion. The dust knew the truth, though. I couldn't hide my secrets from them as they floated so innocently around the long fingers of my small hands. How long could I stay here without being discovered? As soon as I was able to climb out of my crib, I was escaping. Well, maybe I was hiding. It was like I'd been dropped into a jungle and my senses were aware of everything around me. Acutely aware. And I was looking for something. Anything familiar. Shhh. My mind would remind me. Quiet. It was as if I'd stolen away to hide behind the mask of a new identity. As soon as my fisted crayons could move in a somewhat organized manner, I drew yellow stars, one triangle up, one triangle down. Then I drew pentacle stars, both by hundreds, by the hundreds. Each version of the star connected me beyond this life, beyond the world of the yellow canopy bed that I grew into and eventually out of, beyond the world of the cranking windows, beyond the desk and dresser, beyond the preschool, that connected me to the more I knew it was all out there. The stars twinkle everywhere I placed them, usually under my bed or in the closets. Of course, it wasn't the stars in particular that connected me to these other places. They were merely symbols that hinted at a bigger story. To me, the stories were both a bomb and a threat. They felt kind of like how a chipmunk might feel relaxing on the earth, enjoying the afternoon sun, but always ready for the bobcat that may wander by and want a snack. Every now and then the memories left me looking over my shoulder. Sometimes the thoughts of them rose through the sound that was my mother's footsteps, my father's footsteps, anyone's footsteps really. Sometimes they sent me to crouch behind the sofa or left me wriggling deep into the closets behind the hanging quotes and dresses, dresses. Parts of me, I came to realize, were hiding from different memories and for different reasons. Some of the stars were young. They were more playful, but secretive still. Like me, they had to be quiet and not draw attention. But then there was a memory that was more grown up. It kept my heart alert, ran chills down my spine with a sudden movement of loud noise, and taught me not to loserinse but to stay calm, level and ready. It was this memory that had me hiding. As I got older. This was the memory that had me checking on my siblings and parents in the middle of the night sometimes, standing outside their bedroom doors, ears straining from that beautiful rhythm of sleeping breath. It was this memory I wanted to protect them from. Fragmented imagery, the dusty corridor, the sound of quiet but determined steps that carried a mysterious man down his darkened pathway that led to my door. The turning of the doorknob, the chill that raced from my heart as I hid behind the opening door while his collected voice spoke ominously. I know exactly where you are. And then, I never wanted to repeat the, and then, to myself, so I blocked it out. It was so final, so resolute, and there was nothing I could do to stop it. My father's office in our 1937 brick home was an unfinished garret. It ran ran long to his his desk, which was eerily placed beneath a single small window, looking out like a spyglass to the midline of forested pines. Just inside the door, heading to my father's office, a small ladder on the right led to the steep eaves of the house. Up the ladder, a hand-laid brick chimney stood between the rafter space, piercing the roof. From two floors below, the chimney guided the warm, soothing, almost hypnotic fire-smoke to freedom. Heat from the fire never seemed to warm the bricks enough to alter the attic's temperature in the cooler months. This upper portion of the attic was all but empty, save for the exposed beam rafters, small window lighting, the east and west ends of the room, and the slightly dusty scent of ozone on rainy mornings. Up in the attic, this particular memory was so close that it felt just barely out of reach amongst the exposed wood beams. It called to me through the deaf silence, hushed through the creaking bones of, a, of the antique cows. Sometimes I would brave the small the leaves to the riddle of this memory that held so much trepidation. I would try to solve its mystery some nights, before having to once again brush my teeth, clean the, cl- climb into bed, and lay there watching the door. It wasn't every night this particular memory showed up. Like our memories here in this life, These former memories would slip in now and then, now and again, I'm sorry, sharing different scenes, different lives, different moments. It was His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama who said, When science doesn't find something, there are two possibilities the not finding of something that doesn't exist, and the case of, even though something exists, it can't be found. Both cases are distinct from one another. For example, if we were to talk about past lives, or the lives in between lives, there is no way at this time to prove them scientifically, either by creating solid, tangible evidence of a material or through the equation of figures, but that does not mean they don't exist. History is sprinkled with mythologies of those that have spoken to gods and angels. Even today there are those who say they communicate with the dead. Others still tell a fortunes to come my dog made me jump, did you hear that? I jumped about a foot just now. come. What is the chance, though, of meeting one who is born in the curtain between here and there? Someone kind of caught between two plays. Will they know which memories are currently theirs? Or will they feel all memories equally? It took until I was three years old but I was able to speak and therefore share the dreams with my parents. Even then, some of the words I wish I could say were associated with memories that were places and times not in this material version of my life. The words, therefore, felt unapproachable, and my thoughts remained silent. There is a difference between a memory and an imaginary play. It was easy for me to recognize it then, but not easy to explain it. For me, the difference looked and felt as if simple as, simple as walking into the kitchen and seeing my mother in her red-wrapped skirt with the white flowers versus seeing our neighbor wearing the same skirt in our kitchen. I knew my mother, the way she, mother, the way she moved, how she touched me in the silent welcome to her side. Likewise, I knew the memories, just as I knew the sounds of daybirds and sheep engines, the fragrance of linen drying in the sun, or the feel of, of distant winds of an impending storm. The imagined plays, however, were less concrete, They could change at my will, shifting from pirates to Tom Sawyer to bedtime stories such as A Lion in the Meadow by Margaret Mayhew, I hope I said that right. A beautiful story that spoke to what it means to make up stories. And, much like in the book, as I asked for help, my parents believed the recollections I shared to be creative nonsense. So, instead of talking about them, I would venture into the woods, into the attic, or anywhere I could hide away and allow my mind to process its thoughts and explore how they relate to the life and the world around me. Chapter 2. Acclamation and Assimilation Again, if you like what you hear, please double tap that screen. Show me me some likes. I'm trying to build my likes up. Same thing over at Facebook and everywhere else. Show me some thumbs up and some likes and all that good stuff. I'd really appreciate it. Just starting out, you guys. Again, I have permission from the author and the writer to read this book. Chapter 2, Acclimation and Assimilation. To assimilate suggests you change in some way to match your surroundings. People often say that immigrants need to assimilate when they move to a new country. By acclimating, you get used to a new environment without necessarily changing. In some ways, you might acclimate to a, to a new culture without assimilating. The most frustrating part of childhood for me was trying to communicate. The thoughts and information passing through my mind as a child were far deeper than what I was able to express. For some reason, there was a disconnect between the eternal inside and temporary outside. Speech on the inside was and is eloquent. The breadth of language, the variety of accents, and the overall vocabulary were astounding. The music and poetry created was done was done so as a backdrop or narration to the movement of interaction. Interactions could be as simple as staying in bed so, staying in bed soaking in the rising sun, and hearing the progression of the boring bird song. Or they could be as complex as learning some people really do not, like little tree frogs, a lesson I learned by making my sister throw up while I showed her such a frog. Adding to the complexity was another lesson immediately learned cleaning up someone else's vomit and induce your own. My verbal awkwardness stemmed from trying to match what was in my mind with the means for externalizing those feelings and images through language. It was a bit like spaghetti made with salsa rather than marinara sauce. Not wrong per se, but not exactly right either. I turned to drawing in an attempt to share what was happening behind my eyes. Papers were crumpled over and over as I struggled to adequately draw the images. I burned the papers in the fireplace when it was lit, or soaked the papers in water, creating a pulp. I would press the pulp on the bricks outside, trying to create new paper by incorporating any available leaves or seeds of the flowers. Other days, the rays of sunshine shared the otherwise hidden dust particles gliding happily in the glowing warmth. On those days, something deeper felt revealed place where my mind could just be. Much of the time I was in the woods. It was here, after a trip to the woodshed for tools, that I used branches and rocks and old boards to build secret forts, some for the fairies and some for me. On one of these days of construction, I was high in a grove of pine trees, resting in a crux between two boughs and the trunk. Birds hopped between the outer twigs. The trees bowed and rocked like a great clipper ship on a calm open sea. To me, though, the breeze was soft, soft as a whisper by the time it galloped over the pasture and through the sea of pine needles. Below me, a doy sized clearing made for a perfect hideaway. Until my older sister and her friend walked into it, I stayed quiet. Thinking they were alone, they looked around, moved a small log, and pulled out an old pencil box. At that moment, I just knew it was Captain Flint's buried treasure, and Jim Hawkins appeared in the trees with me keeping my breath at bay. I was four. Between hearing the stories of Swiss Family Robinson, Tom Sawyer, and Treasure Island, I was well-versed in the dangers of piracy. I kept calm and reminded myself that Jim wasn't a very good secret keeper, according to Robert Louis Stevenson's own account of Jim, Treasure Island. So I held my breath a little extra for him. When my sister left, I lowered myself, branch by branch, from my high perch. My naked toes ran down the pines' bark skilfully, finding footholds, collecting sap along the way from the bark's bubbles, and the entirety of my imaginary cast followed me to the ground as well, ending in a calamity of errors as they ungracefully piled piled upon one the other in the clearing. But as long as they stayed quiet, while entangling from each other, collecting themselves, I could get to work. Ever so carefully, I moved to the log. This was a dangerous game. Pirates were nothing to mess with. Booby traps, cannibals, volcanoes, and sacrifices. It was pure luck I didn't have the tip of a sword pressing against my kidney already. But these dangers didn't stop my careful movements towards retrieving the box. What could be in it? Gold coins? Rubies? Pens that smelled like grapes and cherries? Or quite possibly the world's best and most secret candy of old time i was hoping for the latter most of all dang it though it was just stuff some writing i couldn't read photos of the two of them my sister and her friend and my sister's horses not even a stick of bubblegum it was right then though that the imaginary storybook guest dissolved in a puff of smoke the beat of my heart became more resolute relief passed through me it was almost like a hand stretched out to me gently saying, come on. Once again, my breath caught on the inhale, but this time it stopped because of recollection, not from fear of being discovered in the pine tree. A morning dawn broke in my chest, a rising sun awakening my soul. It was as if the next actions I took and the decisions I made had always been there, just waiting for me to open that pencil box, kind of like when the din expands into the air around after the lamp is rubbed. I felt that spirit saying to me, it's time. It all made sense. And worlds I had been been missing my entire life showed up like the memories of all memories. These memory lives, which I now know were memories from past lives I had lived, flashed before me with such power that they seemed to almost outweigh the physical life that four-year-old me was currently living. I knew what to do. I returned the pencil box to its hiding place, then I scrambled through the trees, up the pasture, over the lawn, and through the front door. My mother had a jar of buttons in the sewing closet outside her bedroom. I would take it out and play with the buttons every so often, but today it wasn't buttons I was after. It was the jar. All I needed now was a pencil and a piece of paper. I carefully deposited the buttons back in the sewing basket, trying not to make too much of a mess. After taking the jar upstairs to my room, I went to find my sister. She was big, almost ten, so she knew a lot of things. Like how to write in a straight line and how to spell flower. And dear. And lady. Soon, the edge of my hand was practically a pencil of its own from all the lid that collected while practicing my writing. It needed to be just right. Dear flower lady. there. It was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen or felt in my heart. I was running home. Chapter 3, Remote Perspectives Again, if you like what you hear, please leave me a thumbs up, leave me some hearts, leave me some happy faces, I'd really appreciate it. TikTok, if you could do that for me, I'd appreciate it. I'm just trying to build up my likes on here. Here we go. Chapter 3, Remote Perspectives. Memory is part of our mind. Our mind is our consciousness that resides on the other side of the veil. What some encounter when it comes to memory or thoughts, as the brain processes them, is a ferris wheel recirculating events in direct order, where each turn of the wheel carrying events circulate and build upon each other in proportions so large that they become skewed. They are almost obsessively vying for attention, skewing scenes and embellishing parts they know will hijack our thoughts. The actual memories, though, are not stored in our brain. They are in our mind, which resides outside of our body. It is up to our brains to process them. So it is our brains that skew these messages from the other side. Our brains are processing events stored in a remote or non-local location. What happens when our brain begins hyperfocusing on a situation or memory it raises the level of importance? When we have a problem to solve or an issue of sorts that we cannot let go of, even after its resolution, and we keep recalling the memory or thought our brain begins to think there is more in the situation than there really is. At this point, our brain begins tailoring the translation so it fits with the urgency of the constant recall. This process truly can make mountains on molehills. For example, let's say you were given a new job offer. The company that is offering the job is in a new location. The pay is much better, but you would have to start all over again socially. This causes you some anxiety, plus you've never really moved out of the area before and don't know what it's like living or like having someone come in to pack your things. The idea feels pretty big. The opportunity is great, though. It is your dream job. You've been working towards it quietly in the back of your mind for several years. But again, it would be so much better if you didn't have to move. For a week you ponder this. And the company calls and asks for your answer. Even at the moment you get you get ready to announce your decision, a wave of anxiety rushes through you. As you after you make your decision known, rather than committing to you, start questioning. Rather than committing to you, you start to you start questioning. Then I do the right thing? Your brain starts analyzing your choice almost more than it did before the choice was made. You are second guessing, which is okay to a point. Because this is how we remind ourselves of the decision, of the deciding factors. I'm sorry. remind ourselves. My bad. This is how we remind ourselves of the decision, of the deciding factors. It is a natural exercise after a major decision. What becomes a problem, though, is when you can't stop the, the analysis. Your brain begins producing more and more cortisol, more and more adrenaline. You start going over all the things that could go wrong with the choice. Little quirks, little accidents like spilling your drink or dropping your bag or slow traffic or stubbing your toe. Make you more irritable than normal and you remind yourself of the decision. You may start blaming others for encouraging that decision, for making you make this choice. Your brain starts finding everything that is wrong and puts it all in the emergent category rather than saying, okay, I made this decision. And then placing your attention on the personal ownership of it, essentially Making the most of it, knowing if it doesn't work out, you're not stuck forever. By doing this, the mole hills are more likely to stay molehills. But by obsessing over the decision and all the little things, your brain turns them all into the mountains. With these newly formed mountains, your brain begins to form and project assumptions, sometimes un- unwarrantedly. Essentially the brain goes about believing its assumptions and pushes these assumptions upon other situations. When there was a great deal of extended anxiety and recirculation of specific thoughts can batter our hearts and batter our brain. Our brain begins forming preconceived notions. It can be tough to turn this Ferris wheel of memories into a more manageable form of recall. For some, it feels like there is no exit point. The Ferris wheel just keeps getting bigger, adding more seats, more memories, but never stopping to let anyone or anything off, including yourself. I once got caught on a real ferris wheel. The cart I was seated in was towards the top and rocked back and forth in the wind. At first it was kind of fun. There was just enough anxiety to make my heart beat a little stronger. After a few minutes the machinery was shut down. Seagulls landed on a giant circular frame and eyed the ocean for a snack. A half hour passed and people started getting restless. Some yelled to get off to get the machine turned back on. Some were swearing and some older kids pretended they were going to climb down, with a parent or friend grabbing their shirts to sit them back down. I began observing the ground below. There was chaos on the Ferris wheel. The longer the same people were trapped on it, but on the ground, there were people moving calmly. They had mechanics that moved with purpose. They had a manager observing, answering questions. Other employees we're keeping the outlookers and parents of the kids stuck above as peaceful as possible. There was no panic below, but there was a building panic on the wheel. Watching the scene helped me realize that like the real Ferris wheel, our thoughts need a break. They need a chance to get off the rotation, or they will become loud and insistent. But when given the chance for stillness, our brain can calm down. Later, we're approaching the same thoughts with a fresher perspective. For a large percentage of time, my thoughts and memories look like a tapestry from a distance. It's almost like looking at the Earth from space. You can see all the lights twinkling in the active places and the stillness in the quieter locations. Except the tapestry isn't set against the dark space, but rests in and amongst an ethereal light, where even the darkness is ethereal, an all-encompassing place to swim. My tapestry of memory has billions of intersections and binding points. I can zoom in for incredible detail and zoom out for more of a macro view. I usually observe memory rather than relive it. In these unstructured observations, I am able to view or witness my behavior, the behavior of others, and the interactions with the environment without judgment. Looking at situations without judgment is like watching an elephant in the wind versus an elephant in the zoo. By reliving the memory, our brain casts judgment, and it can miss the nuances. It can miss the chain of events that led up to it. As an observer, I can look at the moments from different vantage points and not have defensive emotions—hate, anger, blame—to take over. By observing the sights and smells the tastes and textures, and recalling them from different perspectives, I tend to learn more. I can soar and hover over it like a bird to glimpse the interactions between characters which includes everything from waves of energy to rocks and plants, animals and structures, to human beings and essential elements. The tapestry contains more than just the present iteration in my life. It also includes all past life iterations. I access other iterations of existence on the tapestry by basically finding a binding point where two life strands cross in the weave. Then we can enter that binding point and observe the paths of both life iterations. To get an idea of this, hold up a piece of fine linen of the sun. Each intersection of the weave is the binding point, and the tiny space in between can be used to go around a binding point or offer alternative points of entry. Each binding point leads to another universal plane or dimensional existence. This is, this is all, of course, a great oversimplification. But with the hope, the image speaks some truth. This all-encompassing mesh, a tapestry fabric it is made of forms of vibrations and waves. When memories are triggered, or if you want to recall a specific memory, I can zoom in to hover above or enter into that scene. There's no linear timeline that I'm following, no line that I move back and forth on. Rather, I look for an interaction. An interaction could be as simple as seeing a daffodil in the garden. That daffodil may trigger an image of Mount St. Helens before or after eruption. Then the ash falls over the entire tapestry, and yellow sprouts off from under the ash. This links its own geometric web of events that share particular shades of daffodil yellow. As I look at the delicate weaves of my skin, it too can be used as an example of the tapestry I'm talking about. Consciousness is not isolated to one human vessel. The majority of consciousness does not reside in the vessel. I I am in now, but it is outside of my current body just as it is for all of us. Our consciousness is a connector, the weave of interaction and observation at the subatomic subquantum levels, levels so infinitely small they do not exist, that they surpass antimatter and create a sort of enormity. Looking at this tapestry, at my thoughts and memory, also shows the importance of connection, of interaction, of how these connections started far before my current life inception. In order to have a life experience, we need to have connection. We need to have interaction, even if it is infinitesimal. These connections and interactions are imperative, not only to our conscious being, but to our very existence. Our biological connections also show that our events and experiences were connected to us light years before revealing themselves to us in this iteration of life. We are a blend of elements that once formed the trees and helped the little all fly. We are the soil. We are the air. We are decomposed material from all walks of life, because here on Earth, we cannot create or destroy energy. This idea is the law of conservation of mass. Therefore, our bodies hold great secrets. We live within the world's unseen. There is no division. We're part of the magic. Let me double check here really quick. Make sure we're still broadcasting on this because you never know. Welcome everybody who's here. Hi, Pamela. How you doing? Okay, I'm going back in. We're going to go to the next chapter now. I just want to make sure. Sometimes uh, my other broadcast will stop, but I don't even realize it because I'm over here. I'm trying to like multitask here. Chapter four: Energy is contagious. Again, if you like what you hear, please send me some hearts, thumbs up, uh, happy faces really, I'd be really happy, especially over here on TikTok, if you could double tap that screen, I would really appreciate it. I'm trying to build up my likes and build up my audience and things like that. If you feel like you want to subscribe, so you can hear this every week, twice a week I read. Please do that as well. Okay? All right, here we go. Chapter 4. Energy is contagious. Oh, I see. Okay. Never mind. <laughs> I love those days. Chapter 4. Energy is contagious, how we reach the ground. Like a memory, we are linear, uh, linear. Like a memory, we're no linear strand of genealogy either. Our biological bodies are made of very special compilation, of a very special compilation, as all of life is. We are literally bodies of the Earth, of the stars, of the multitudes of the universe. We carry multiple layers of DNA. We have different proteins that are triggered through our environment, internal and external, that can set off illnesses, trigger outrage and violence, or trigger a sense of calm. They have an effect on how we go about this current life experience, and in some cases can override genetic predispositions, or, at least, quiet one set of predispositions predisp- while awakening another. For example, for, I'm sorry, for an example of how our, in you, eh, let me do it again, an example of how our in utero environment directly affects our physical and emotional development. If you stress mothers during pregnancy, their children are more likely to have addictive personality traits. One of the most famous studies of this was the Dutch Hunger winter of 1944-45. to For months, people in Holland starved as the Nazis took their food to feed Germany. The People in Holland were starving to death. were desperate emotionally and physically. There was no hope in those dark months. Despair and grief and anguish and fear were everywhere. For expectant mothers in the second and third trimesters, their developing fetuses were already learning what to prepare for beyond the safety of the womb. Their cells were programming based on the mother's anxiety levels. They were regulating nutritional intake and their bodies were preparing for resource availability in regard to food beyond birth. The developing body started programming to store surplus nutrients like sugars and fats. It caused those initial Dutch, Dutch fetuses in the study to have a much higher likelihood of, of metabolic problems like high, like high blood pressure, diabetes, and obesity. The changes that were triggered during that three-month period of the Dutch hunger winter not only affected the individual utero development, but was carried through the following generations as a genetic predisposition. Fears and stresses experienced in pregnancy feed the developing baby higher levels of stress hormones, like cortisol. But this isn't the only time a parent's stress and fear of anxiety affects infants and children. A child can learn fear of water without ever having understood why, and that fear of water can continue through adulthood, while the individual may not ever know the cause. This is because if a parent has an unspoken fear of swimming or water, The anxiety of that fear is felt by the infant child, and they learn that water is unsafe. Imagine a mother or father carrying their baby or young child to dip their toes in the lake. While walking to the lake, subconsciously the parent tenses. The child feels the change in energy, and that energy, and that change in energy triggers a warning, a warning that comes in the form of a chemical change. Early experiences help shape out. Shape, I'm sorry, early experiences help shape our adult behavior as well, even when the experiences happen before recall and this life is developed. We have two primary forms of memory implicit and emotional memory, and explicit memory. Each form has several subtypes. For instance, implicit and emotional memory contains such subtypes as procedural memory, conditioning memory, and priming memory. Implicit and emotional memory is where emotional impacts coincide with interpretation. The infant or child translates these experiences while trying to understand them, and in doing so, the experiences are patterned in the electrical and chemical circuits of the brain. This implicit memory, the emotional memory, is started immediately at inception and can count for part of that gut feeling we get throughout our life in certain situations. Explicit memory is a type of memory more familiar to us. It is the kind of memory that shows us details, a playback of events in our life. The playback memories don't typically take shape until a little later in our early life, which is why many people have their first memories at or about 3 or 4 years old and rarely do they recall them before a year and a half. Interestingly, it is also at a year and a half that we first begin getting a sense of self and a sense of our body and how our body interacts with and moves and moves in and about the world around us. This is interesting because this directly relates to how our current consciousness works. If we use the example of adopted children, we find many of them have a fear of abandonment or a sense of rejection. Even though infants cannot recall the adoption explicitly, they can recall it implicitly. This fear of abandonment and rejection can translate as part of an undercurrent throughout their lives. They may not ever know what caused it or that sometimes these underlying fears push people away, especially when they become too close. This can also happen with children who have experienced significant losses in early age. They may not trust those who are looking out for them. This can include adoptive surviving or surviving parents, teachers, doctors, and family members in their charge. This lack of trust extends from the implicit memory. As adults, they may set out to find a reason that they have a hard time making friends and forming relationships. Or they may wonder why they don't trust anyone becoming emotionally close. In this search, they are sometimes told these fears of intimacy and rejection stem from past life experiences. They are put into a form of hypnosis and begin exploring past life memories. These therapies can help the individual process their fears or allow them safe spaces to role play issues that help put a picture to their feelings. In these situations, the brain can find the needed space to find a translation that fits the person's present experiences and symptoms. It is important, however, to note that the likelihood of something from your past life experience wreaking havoc in your current life is very low. It's more likely that the underlying concerns you're presently facing were not carried over from from that past life, but from your developmental environment in this current life. Chapter 5. Past Life Recall, Two Cases in Contrast. If you like what you hear, double tap that screen, double tap that screen. Like I said, I'm just starting out, and I'm just trying to build up my likes over, over on TikTok. So if you can help me out with that, I'd appreciate it. You guys know what to do on Facebook and YouTube and all those other places because we talk about it every night. So here we go. Uh, We've got a parenthesis at the top here. It says names and locations have been changed for privacy. In the following chapters, we'll look more deeply into how talking about your past life experiences can change one's present life. Past life therapies can offer an individual the chance to step back, look at a situation as an observer, and, when done effectively, help take situations off the ferris wheel and place them on the ground. Both the environment around us and our mind, again the soul or eternal consciousness, work together to bring information to our body. Our body is the receiver. It is a translator for the environmental stimuli and the mind, and it guides this human vessel as it navigates its scene on the Earth's stage. It was 1965. The New Jersey temperature decided to follow the mid-autumn season by staying cool. Leaves painted the landscape both on the branches and on the ground. For a bright and inquisitive three-and-a-half-year-old boy named Ethan, the seasonal change seemed curious. He felt the crisp air pinch his full cheeks and heard the evening winds knock on his windows as he stirred to sleep, as if acknowledging the wind's desire to still want to play. By the time his body finally settled to rest, the air found its way through the single pane window and snuck around the edges of his blankets that were wrapped high over his shoulders, keeping him warm. The knocking wind at first rapped like the tick of a clock, a second-hand lullaby, but soon it began to morph into a more mechanical rhythm, with gears cranking to start an engine. Eaton's brow twitched as the sounds carried him from his room, where he had been tucked in safely by his mother for the night. To the start of three radial engines of the German aviation company's Junkers JU-52-3M. Eaton's blanket and bed turned into a cot. He was strapped down and couldn't move. Maybe it was just sleep paralysis, but what if it was memory? In his dreams, doctors and scientists joined his flight. Watching him on the stretcher, he was alive. His head was braced and placed to prevent wobbling from any air turbulence. Electrodes broke his skin and a drill worked through his skull. He was alive. He called for help to no avail and was sedated momentarily by his own body passing out. Coming too. he was still there. The muffled sounds of people working on him, the swiggering of radio frequencies, he screamed out. His mother came to the room to find him inconsolable. It was a night terror that Eaton could not explain at the time because he hadn't had the words to describe and define the terror he had endured. For months the night terrors woke the house. Soon after his fourth birthday, Eaton at last found the ability to share what he was experiencing. The feelings and the fear raced through him at such speed that he anxiously climbed out of his bed and went to his parents' room where he began pacing. The memory flashed as if he were still there even though he was fully aware of his surroundings as back and, as he walked back and forth at the foot of the parent's bed, the smells, the sounds, the changes in altitude, he urgently began speaking. They're experimenting on my brain," he said, doing his best to explain what was happening to him. They want to probe it with electricity. I'm on an airplane. They want to study my brain in the air. They wanted to know how it works at high altitude. They wanted to see if my brain can turn into a radio. His father turned the night table light on and looked at some other. What the heck is wrong with him? His father asked in annoyance. Is he crazy? He must have a fever, his mother replied, getting out of bed to feel his forehead. No, he doesn't have a fever. Should we take him to the hospital? His father asked as he sat on the edge of his bed rubbing the samples. No, he'll be fine. His mother then took Eaton's shoulders while carefully turning him towards the door. Back to bed with you. It was only a nightmare. But the dreams continued. They showed more detail. Then Then they started finding him during the waking hours of the day. He tried to talk about it. But each time he tried to tell the terrors of what was happening to him, his thoughts were brushed away as if he simply had an overactive imagination. Most childhood past life recalls are seen as just that, in fact, an imagination that became carried away. In Eden's case, he never forgot those memories. He never forgot the fear he was in when he went that first night to his parents for meeting them. Validation of what was happening and reassurance that he was now space, a safe. <laughs> he just stopped speaking of the memory and pushed it aside as part of his comically disturbed imagination, as his friends would describe it as he got older. When I met Eaton, he was 49 years old, and this memory was one of the first he shared with me when we spoke about his trouble sleeping and the dreams that haunted his sleep. He spoke about a sh- he spoke about a shah- sh- oh. Shall we? I actually, sh- shall, shall, I don't know why I can't say that word. <laughs> he spoke about it shallowly, shall don't ask, as if it were a joke. He didn't want to rummage anywhere near how his this memory, or his parents' reactions to his memory, could be affecting his life now. So he spoke of many other things over the years, including the disappointments in his life he believed were mainly derived by all those around him. This can be where our past life recall affects our life here. Adult past life regression is encouraged to help get over fears, inhibitions, relationship issues, and redefine personal values. Again, it is not necessarily the past life experience that is wreaking havoc over the current life. The interactions and reactions we have in the current life are more likely the culprit. The past life experience is only a form of recall. It works just like our current life recall a recall being either an explicit or implicit memory. And what we recall is just one event of many that stand out. Just as a memory of our childhood would stand out today. Our childhood memory is only sharing a fraction of what we did and experienced. Our past life recall is working the same way. It works the same way because they are all past life recalls. Our childhood is a sort of past life. Each year is a sort of past life. This morning is a sort of past life. They all reside as part of the tapestry. The intersections and binding points that flow within our consciousness and are laced together. For Eaton, his recollection of events and the feelings associated with them came out slowly as we built trust. Usually I know my dreams are nightmares, he said, even though sometimes I wake up inside the dream as if it were playing out. Like one time there was an octopus on the ceiling. It seemed like it was really there when I woke up. I could see it. But when I was young and pacing the floor, trying to get away from the German experiments, that was different. That was real, although I did not know they were German at the time. There wasn't much information about the Nazi brain uh, experiments at altitude, especially back in 1965 when he began verbalizing the night terrors to his parents or even a decade ago. And one day, as I was. At researching another childhood past life experience, I found a Nova article. In 1942, Sigmund Rascher and others conducted high-altitude experiments on prisoners at Dachau. Even to find out how best to save German pilots forced to eject at high altitude, they placed inmates into low-pressure chambers that simulated altitudes as high as 68,000 feet and monitored their, physio- their, their physiological response as they succumbed and died. Rasher was said to dissect the victims' brains when they were still alive to show that high-altitude sickness resulted from the formation of tiny air. Again, I'm going to go back to you guys and say this. This is the PG-13 an Art Channel. That goes for Facebook and everywhere. If you don't like what you're hearing, move on to another channel, OK? Because, you know, this is just a book. There's no harm in it. We're not hurting anybody. All right. While we were still alive, we showed that high-altitude sickness resulted from the formation of tiny air bubbles in the blood vessels of a certain part of the brain. Of the 200 people subjected to these experiments, 80 died outright and the remainder were executed. I shared this with Eaton. We spoke about what he remembered, about him actually being on a plane. That he remembered actually having electrodes placed in his brain while he was alive could quite possibly have happened. As we may never really know, all the experiments the German Nazi scientists and doctors came up with and pursued. But his story was not that far fetched from what we know about what was happening at that time in history. Eaton suffers from an extreme, almost paralyzing anxiety. He has an extraordinary lack of trust for others, including those nearest to him. In the last ten years, things had gotten worse. He had all his money stolen, embezzled by a common. A con man, more sinister than mad Maddox. Because, situa- because of situations like this in his life, it was no wonder that over the years, he subconsciously pushed away intimacy more and more. He felt and, feel, and feels and fears that he is not being heard. He has plowed his way through life because if he paused to take a breath, it felt more like drowning. He likes to be in control of his life and in control of those in his life because he takes the actions and thoughts of others very personally. But if you were to listen to his stories and the words and the spaces between them, you would find the need for validation, for someone to believe him, for someone to hold him and say, you're okay, you're safe, you're loved. In more Western societies, the idea of previous lives and our intimate connection to the world's unseen don't hold much weight. If your thoughts and behaviors don't quite fit the mold of what should be, then we try to change them by placing perimeters on what life should be like. We do this with everything, from how we should look to how we should learn, even how we should parent. There are universal mannerisms that are important when interacting with others. I'm not denying that at all. But when children are complying, we tend to subdue them into submission, sometimes unnecessarily through a medicated crutch. Children tend to act out when they're not being heard or not being validated or start to drown beneath the world of expectations. The world of shoulds promotes a loss of creativity through stressing an achievement-based society. We teach to think outside the box as long as it stays inside the shoulds. Shoulds equal compliance and compliance rewards predictable behavior. So. When people have glimpses of their past life experiences, it becomes hard not only to talk about them when they are young, but oftentimes the memories are disregarded because the memories can be an uncomfortable subject. And it's easier to just gloss over them. In the case with Eaton, it was easier for his parents to keep him at arm's length emotionally. Growing up, Eaton complied by being what he thought was perfectly at home. He always did everything his parents asked sometimes before they asked. Still, it was never good enough for his parents. No matter how much he wanted their approval, encouragement, it never came. As Eaton got older, he started rebelling. He also started to believe that no one in this world would care for him, and it was up to him to succeed on his own. He saw success through monetary gains. The love he wanted to share and the love he wanted to have was found through each dollar in his bank account. Money doesn't hurt you. Money doesn't deceive you. Money can do everything you want it to do. Almost. At least this was his thought process. And that is where he placed his intimacy. Women serve more for enjoyment or entertainment needs. He never stayed long enough with any of them to feel anything. A An relationship could last a day or a year. He found a way out. Compliance became what he wanted in others. When people didn't comply with Eaton, he would unknowingly exhibit a form of bullying. It was stars be personal, sarcasms, gaslighting was his way of getting what he wanted. And if he couldn't get it, at least in his mind, he was able to place the blame on the other person, thereby keeping himself out of harm's way. The man beneath all this was crying out for love. His heart had kindness. He just didn't know how to connect. He didn't know how to trust, although he would say he did trust. He also said he just gave that trust to the wrong people. He found he could get proof, approval from strangers. He could show kindness through acts that would not trap him into any form of commitment. He used drugs to rebel and escape his father's pressure from perfection. His gross elaborations of the truth were just bits of color when he told stories. The lack of accountability to truth. Didn't matter anyway, as he was hiding behind a facade of what he wanted to be seen as, rather than someone who needed a helping hand. I've never asked anyone for help, and no, and no gave me a, no gave me a break ever. No one gave me a break ever. He said, "No one was ever there for me, but I'm always there for everyone." This statement was verbalized innumerable times a day to multiple people and repeated continuously on his internal Ferris wheel. However, what Eaton didn't see in that consistent Ferris rule statement of his was that many people wanted to help him helped him in ways he didn't recognize. Subsequently, he pushed all that help away. He never accepted a thank you from anyone. He would respond with, I didn't do it for a thank you. I don't want anything. Of course, that was completely untrue. He wanted things in return that included eternal gratitude, not through a verbalization or gifts. But through compliance. He pushed away anyone who openly tried to help support him emotionally. He didn't understand, excuse me, my allergies. He did not understand what it was to be there emotionally for anyone, but he could be financially. He understood money, and money for him was the answer to most of life's dilemmas. This isn't easy to say, this isn't, I mean, this is to say that money is bad or that it is the root of all evil. We need it, it is the primary means of our trade. It represents time and flexibility. It is not a bad thing to pursue, it is not a bad thing to want. It isn't healthy, though, when someone's identity becomes intertwined with their bank account. That creates a mess. What happened with Eaton growing up had a great effect on his adult life. And for the most part, this is where we confuse healing a past life with healing our current life. Remember, it is all memory. Our past lives and our current lives are not segregated. They are connected in an internal tapestry of consciousness and work the same way. Only our brain focuses on the current life because that is what is relevant. Even though the memory of the past life experience clearly affected Eaton, it was his current life experience that caused spiritual and emotional injury. Expectations, assumptions, and shoulds created a need for perfection. That, in turn, encourages superficial interactions and achievements. We see this more and more each day. The United States is one of the most medicated countries in the world, with prescription pills being recommended as though they were just a regular part of the culture. And with the drugs, whether prescribed or recreational, people still feel like they are grasping the straws. It is important for the economic and political system that all these shoulds we remain the talking part of the culture because it helps instill fear. And fear is powerful. It leads to judgment and division. The idea of negative failure begins at a young age, though it's hard to pinpoint exactly when it starts seeping into our brain. It doesn't come from the mind, but from the processing of our interactions with others. We begin holding ourselves accountable for what is seen as failure. And failure in a young brain means bad. Learning to walk, falling down, and then trying again is not failure. If a baby can't master that skill, they compensate, but they don't beat themselves up or think they are bad just because they're having trouble. As children get older, they're pushed along with a carrot path, where each large, small, and small milestone is met, with only a goal for the next one. A, you'll be happy, Wingle. As each goal reaches higher and higher. It positions children to act in passive-aggressive and aggressive ways against each other. As one child rises in the ranks, others fall to the wayside and distance themselves from the enjoyment of learning. This is this then distances them from exploration, and it promotes depression and tireless disappointment. It becomes easier for them to gauge their importance in life through superficial achievements, while emotionally they suppress their feelings to avoid showing weakness. This is exactly what Eaton did with his money. Although he didn't flaunt his money, he measured it. He measured his own worth against it, and eventually, he made millions of dollars. And yet, he still lost, still constantly disappointed. Learning to work hard and explore your aptitudes in life is much more constructive. Not everyone needs a trophy, because not everyone is good at everything. Allowing children and adults alike the chance to learn what they, are, what they are good at and what they are not good at creates more harmony. It helps keep the connections open to our institution, uh, no, sorry, to intuition and information on the other side of the veil. One of the hardest parts of the time I spent with Eaton was allowing for vulnerability. I remember the day Eaton found out that 90% of life's work secured his savings had been embezzled and would never be recovered. At that time, the stocks he'd researched it and invested in also fell to the floor. He'd lost his greatest love. In his eyes, and his heart, he'd lost more than 35 years of his life. I worked my entire adult life. I went to college, became a scientist, got my PhD, went to medical school, he explained to me, devastated. I ate plain rice, put myself in debt to get my degrees. I made, my, I made my career, I made my money, and it is all gone. I can't get the time back, and I can't get my money back. As Eaton spoke, going through the thoughts riding on the ever-growing Ferris wheel in his brain, he began to learn to let some of those thoughts off the ride. For self-punishment, he allowed them back on time and time again. Like the others he had gaslit his life, he had discovered he'd actually be gaslighting himself all along. He was his biggest bully. He felt no one could really care about him, and his brain reminded him of that. His brain used all the gaslighter's tricks to push him down, to attack him emotionally, to devalue him, and again he projected all this upon others. When the thoughts of the Ferris wheel spread around and around, he would aim venom towards them, finding fault with everyone in the memories except himself. He felt fault with everyone in the grocery store, everyone pumping gas, everyone everywhere. The venom spewed into the world around him. Until self-victimization set in, he was the only one he knew who lived in the real world. He liked to say, adding, I live in reality, I'm a realist. In his eyes though, this reality was a dark, disturbing place filled with unkindness or people thinking kindness for ulterior motives. Then, slowly over the course of many years, Eaton learned to trust. He learned to step off the Ferris wheel. To step off the Ferris wheel. He tested the waters with other ways to interact with people, to plant new seeds now for the future. He learned the should-bees weren't necessarily helping in a productive way, but that they had helped improve life's disappointments. He, his reality in his world of should have of shoulds had. Been created. Shoulds, I'm sorry, I've just heard it weird. His reality and his world of shoulds had been created long ago when he wasn't heard as a child, when he felt as though he would never be good enough. That is what he projected upon the world around him and used to create his reality. Learning to let go of the preconceived notions is hard, it is a reprogramming of the brain's processing. And for Ethan, as as hard and scary as that is, he was ready. What happens, though, when we offer validation? When children bring these past life memories forward, whether it's true or not, what happens when we listen? Years ago, I was staying in a retirement community in a little town in Arizona. The spring weather was heating up, pushing the residents, known as snowbirds, back to their northern homes. As the swimming pool was increasingly emptier than it had been over the winter, on one of these quiet days, I thought I would find a spot of shade beneath one of the big orange umbrellas. I made my way over the hot deck to the shallow end of the pool and got in. That was when two voices caught my attention. These voices were much younger than the normal sect here, fifty years younger even. They were not very timid, either, as they came right up and asked if I wanted to play. I looked up at their grandfather she to get an approving nod. I learned quickly from these two boys about the different cartoon characters, video games, their pets, and what they had for lunch, how long they were visiting their grandfather, where they were from only an hour away, and that they liked popsicles. I need to get going now, boys, I said after an hour or so of games such as Marco Polo, Sharks and Minnows, and underwater tea parties. It was nice to meet you. Can't you stay just a few more minutes, they asked in tandem. How about this? I will run home and bring you guys back a popsicle, and that will be a good way to say, until next time. I double-checked with her grandfather before bringing the treats back. I want the red one, and you can have your favorite purple one, the younger brother in the hospital handing it to his older brother before looking back at me and saying, I was struck by lightning and died. What? I said with a quick giggle, thinking it was an odd and out of place, out of the blue statement? ''Oh, don't listen to that,'' the big brother said, playfully pushing his brother's shoulder. ''He has always been talking about this stupid story. My parents tried to get him to stop lying about it, but we humor him now. Just don't listen to his nonsense.'' I looked at the boy who made the announcement. His lips were turning red from the frozen cherry popsicle. ''Tell me what happened,'' I said. ''Well,'' the boy began. ''I was struck by lightning, sort of next to a tree, actually.'' Everything got really bright, and I was not inside my whole body. It happened so fast. I tried to come back, but was told that I couldn't. But then, five years later, I woke up here, with his family. Where were you when this happened, I asked, when you were killed by lightning? He named the state casually. I I repeated the question. Yep. How old were you, I asked. you remember much about your life before the lightning strike? What the cars looked like? I was bigger. I could drive, he said. The cars look about the same as they do now. Then he continued to give information about his family life, his parents, and what he was doing when the event happened. I believe you. Even with him already facing me, I could see the doubt taking his expression when I told him that. The del- I'm sorry, the devil taking his expression when I told him that. "'You don't really believe that, do you?' his brother said, as if looking to defuse the situation, not wanting to go through another round of his brother's tale. "'Just ignore him.'" I looked at the big brother and gave him a quick, playful wink that could say, "'Maybe I do, maybe I don't.'" Then, just as I turned to leave the pool area, the boy with the memory yelled out, "'It was in the 2000s.'" Then he added something about his former parents and someone he liked. I got home and started searching for anything that could line up with this story. After a few minutes, there was a sentence. In the state he told me, no one has been fatally struck by lightning since 2006, when a 16-year-old died according to the National Weather Service. I kept digging. The next day I found the boys splashing and laughing in the pool. I went over to the boys' grandfather and father. Did you know or do you know anyone who was struck by lightning? or that had a friend or family member killed by lightning?" I asked. They both replied with a flat no. Have you or, or anyone you know spoken to people struck by lightning with your son or know of any stories of people who may have experienced that? Again, they answered no. Would it be all right to share what I found out about your son's grandson's story with you and with him? Curiously, curiosity crossed their faces, and they both gave their approval. The boys paused momentarily when they saw me call them over. They resumed their underwater trajectories to the pool's edge. I have a quick question for you, I said, pointing to the end of the two. What year were you born? 2011. My mind quickly took 2011 and overlapped it with 2006, replaying his comment from the day before. Five years later, I came here. I had a few more questions, I asked her grandfather. Then I said, I have a story to tell you. Something I found on the internet last night. I proceeded to tell him what I found, and the year took place. You mean it's true? The big brother explained. I shrugged my shoulders and said, "This is just what I read last night. That sounded like what your brother was describing." And that is when the validation hit the boy, but the memory and tears released was relief and sorrow, while he repeated, "I knew it was true. I knew it was true." Is my family okay? He asked about his previous family. We all sat for a while and let the events in the last 24 hours soak in with radiating sun. Months later, we all rounded one another again at the pool, and the young boy came over and hugged me. Thank you, he said again. Thank you. And his father smiled from across the deck, making his way to where I was seated. It is amazing, his father said to me, the changes in my son since you spoke to us before. We never believed him, and without so many words, considered him a liar. I sat and listened. He has calmed down the last few weeks, and more importantly, his lying about other things has subsided. The boy was heard, he was listened to, and felt his thoughts were validated. Whether or not I had found something, he would have felt heard. For years he had been associated with being a liar. He had begun to believe and had begun playing his role as a liar to not disappoint the others. But he was disappointing himself. And when his original liar, or his original lie was taken seriously, he was able to step out of this role as a liar and finish the school year, interested in learning, and learning and participating not as a gesture, but sharing his opinions and thoughts without fear or anxiety with others. All right, that's it for tonight. Um, we will continue. Well, let me pop over the streamyard here. We will continue this book on Sunday. And that will be six thirty p.m. Pacific, right here. Okay. Uh, be sure uh, be on the lookout for uh, it to pop up on Facebook. Again, if you are watching from Facebook tonight and you like what you hear, please leave me a thumbs up, a happy face, and stuff like that. It puts us higher in the FYP. Uh, if you're watching from YouTube and you like what you hear, please leave me a uh, happy face, smiles, you know, the whole thing. Even comments, comments help. Comments help put us higher in the FYP. I really appreciate you all coming tonight, even over on TikTok. Again, uh, we do uh, broadcast nightly with with some great shows on California Haunts Radio, and that is uh, youtube.com forward slash at California Haunts Radio if you're interested in joining us. Tomorrow we'll be here at 6.30 p.m. Pacific with me and Nancy Matz, and we're going to be talking about how to deal with adults and children who see spirits or ghosts as disfigured. So that's going to be an interesting talk tomorrow, and that will be happening at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. And again, I will be back reading this book on Sunday at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. All right? I'm going to let you guys go tonight. I see. Welcome, Mary. Okay, well, welcome, everybody. I see you in the chat room. Appreciate you all coming. And I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Let me queue up my end over here, and see ya.